Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jance and my guest today is Tim Sanders. He's the author of four books, including the New York Times bestseller, Love is the Killer App. And I'm pretty sure we had him on the show. I've been doing it for that darn long. Um, and he's got a new book out called Deal Storming, The Secret Weapon That Can Solve Your Toughest Sales Challenges. So, Tim, thanks for joining me again. John, glad to be with you. So I always challenge authors when we come up with a new term necessarily to for for a title of a book uh, to at least start there. Let's uh, let's frame what what is deal storming? What does that term mean? Deal storming is the combination of brainstorming, a very lateral creative process, and deal making, a very linear A to B to C process. So when you combine them, what deal storming is is the act of putting together multidisciplinary teams to solve big sales challenges one next best play at a time. So I wonder if um, there's a number of books that have come out recently, like Matthew Dixon's uh, books, uh, and, and I know you know Matthew and the Challenger Sale and then the Challenger mm-hmm. Customer, that have really uh, gone deep into this idea that, that we have to change uh, the mm-hmm. way we're doing these things because the customer has changed the way that they buy. Would you say that the deal storming is kind of a new way or is it a necessity? Um, I think it's definitely a necessity, but let's back up for a second. I just was on the phone with Matt Dixon for an hour, right? It was crazy. I just hung up with him. He and I were talking about this idea that, you know, what the challenger introduced was the idea that in a world of the 5.4 decision maker who's 67% through their journey, we have to take control of the conversation to survive in sales. And so what they're thinking a lot about these days is the idea that and in that world – we have to become better at innovating and not just innovating at the systems level, like how we go to market, but innovating at the deal level. So because of all the different decision makers and because of all the self-research, the shelf life of a good idea in sales is shrinking and its throughput is waning. So it's more important than ever for us to become rapid problem solvers as sales and marketing professionals and not just big idea, hard closer people. And I think that's the the real transition that's really important if you want to compete in this complex world. Well, I think in some ways, uh, you know, you mentioned that whole, you know, down, everybody's doing their own research. They've already figured out what their problem is and how to solve it. Now they're just looking for, you know, the right peg to put in the right hole. Mm -hmm. So do we as salespeople have to actually get better at helping them see problems they don't see or framing the problem. It's almost like the person who writes the RFP, you know, is most suited to solve it. I mean, are we, do we need to be, do we need to be finding and uncovering problems before they even start talking about the fact that they have that problem? So another big part of Matt and I having this discussion, I've been doing a lot of research on what I call reteaching. Like how much time do we do, do we need to spend in sales reteaching? And, And what we found is that, Yep, customer does their own research. They think they know what they want, but there's two scenarios that really play out 90% of the time. Okay? Mm. Scenario one um, is they're wrong. Um, They do research. They get content marketing that are written by startups that are using content as a lead generation machine. So everything's kind of thrown against the wall. It's not much more accurate than anything you'd read on a bulletin board on Yahoo Finance. And as a result, 
trying to put in one of your business problems and find the solution where you don't have to see the salesperson is tantamount to using Google instead of going to the doctor. And you and I both know, John, if you've got a spot on your chest and it's little and it's brown and you go on Google and you say little brown spot on my chest and you hit enter, what is the answer? You're going to die of skin cancer, which is usually not the case. So if you go to your doctor, what does a doctor have to do these days? They have to unteach you. And that's the problem for today's salesperson is today's salesperson really does need to become a challenger. But what they're doing is challenging a methodology of procurement because that's what's changed. The way we get stuff has changed. Even in B2C, the way we buy cars, true car, for example, it's just all changed. That doesn't mean it's right. So that's a huge challenge for the salespeople. The second scenario when the customer does their own research is they decide to stick with what they're doing. And that's what happens most of the time. I mean, that's our enemy. Yeah, yeah, we don't yeah. compete with other companies. We compete against the status quo. When we win, we get them to change the way they do business. And that's where the creative challenge comes in, requires this deal storming collaboration, is that more than ever, it's harder to get people to make a change from the outside. Yeah, and, and does that speak to the fact that their their sales or their buying process has gotten so much more complex as well? So, so it's not just this matter of, you know, they – they go down this nice linear path of, of making a decision. It's like all these deal killers <laughs> are all along right. the way, right? <laughs> right. So, well, so you know, what does that yeah. mean for the salesperson, right? It just increases the number of problems we have to solve to get to the finish line. Mm-hmm. So you, it's a hundred problems solved. It's a thousand problems solved. In the old days, it was four problems solved. Yeah. I got to the right person. I picked the right product. I sold it according to the script, and I asked for the order, and I made sure and got the signature. Actually, it's five steps. But that used to be your five core problems, and now a done deal is 100 problems. It's like, okay, I, I've, I've convinced the user. How do I get the tech group to say that, that this is good for their system and not a rip and replace? We've done that. Now we've got to get through info security because they're worried it's not stable. We got that done, but wait a minute. Finance is in the loop now, and they just called procurement. Oh, and forget all of that. They've just been bought. So we've got this IR group at the new acquisition. Those things really happen to us now in sales. And so the secret to being successful is what I call rapid problem solving. That's why deal storming is important because you have these series of meetings that just focus on the next best play. And the whole idea is in a compressed period of time, we solve one problem faster than our competition can or we solve one problem fast enough to beat the status quo before the client becomes kind of exhausted with the whole buying process. And all of this happens, John, in the context where as more and more decision makers pile on, each one has their own individual agenda. So for the salesperson, your greatest, your greatest task in these situations is to get everybody to make that leap you know, from their own agendas uh, to the shared vision of what it really means to the enterprise to solve this problem. So, I mean, that's really at the heart of this idea of deal storming too, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I love about this concept is the idea of bringing in the troops mm-hmm. that, that you don't solve the VP of finances problem by, you know, just presenting the same sales argument. You've got to actually have somebody come in who can talk to that person. Um, Right. They know something about that problem. Like your own finance person is a good example of a great deal stormer when you're stuck in one of your decision maker loops with a finance person who thinks that way. This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by my friends at FreshBooks. I have loved this tool for a really long time. Uh, it is super intuitive, makes creating sending invoices really simple. You know you got to collect the cash, you got to keep track of the expenses, and you got to collect the cash. That's really what it comes down to uh, in your finances. FreshBooks takes about 30 seconds to set it up. You can personalize it for your brand, and your clients can now start paying you online, which 
for many people can speed up getting paid. You'll know whether or not they opened up an invoice. Really, really great tool for creating invoices. But it does a heck of a lot more. Uh, obviously, that's one of the key features. But you can also track your expenses and put them into categories so that all of a sudden the, the bookkeeping and accounting stuff gets a lot easier. Of course, there's a mobile app. You can track cash flow so that you know when to expect money coming in. Time tracking. If you're doing uh, any invoicing or projects uh, that are hourly based, you can just put it right into FreshBooks. So here's the thing you need to know is that if you are a person that uh, really does not like the numbers, uh, maybe especially if you're one of those people, FreshBooks is offering a month of unrestricted use to all duct tape marketing listeners. It's totally free right now, and you don't even need a credit card to get started. Just go to freshbooks.com slash duct tape. So my, uh, my dad was a you know bag-carrying, long-time, you know, do- not door-to-door, but commercial, you know, basically door to door. He went to the town square and went from the hardware store to the variety store and uh, sold. But his first job, I remember you telling this story all the time. His first job was he sold shoes for, you know, I can't remember, a guy probably had a great, you know, Jewish name or something, you know, that uh, Mr. So-and-so that he sold. Yeah. Um, And their deal was if somebody walked in and you couldn't sell them a pair of shoes, they were like, "Eh, no, these just aren't really right for me. And they were starting to walk out. You had to go grab somebody else, another salesperson Uh who would engage them. I mean, that was the deal. Deal, that person didn't leave unless somebody else tried to engage them. And, and as I read through your book, I mean, it, it brought that story back because I think that's really at the heart of what you're saying here. Absolutely. And the research bears it out too. I mean, MHI's research is really clear. It's like when you look at the companies that beat their competitors by 20%, whatever metric, and you try to figure out what do they have in common? The only thing they have in common is that they have this habit of collaborating across these different departments when they're trying to pursue game changers or save big accounts. Because, John, it changes the culture of their company. Because nothing is more measurable in terms of a win or a loss than a deal or an account. And so when marketing and sales and operations and finance and even a channel partner all get together in a room and collaborate and then they win, they realize it's now the first response and not the last resort. And what MHI says is that changes everything in a company. And all of a sudden now they're better at delivery of services. And they're getting more renewals because they're operating as a real live team. And, you know, work's not being thrown over the wall. And that's why it's so important that, you know, I say when you get stuck in a sales challenge as the account executive, you have to ask yourself, you know, who has a stake in the outcome? And who are my experts about this problem? And that's the core of your team. And the last thing I want to say, because I know so many people are in marketing world that listen to this, MHI also found that the world-class company, they're three times more likely to have a very close partnership between marketing and sales. Mm-hmm. The words internal customer don't exist in those cultures. Okay, um, Sales is not an internal customer to marketing. That's a bad idea if you want to have a collaborative business environment. It's a good idea if you're trying to roll up a company for a private equity buyout and make it efficient, right? Because you're just creating shared services across the enterprise with this faux internal customer model so that you don't have to hire anybody from the outside to do work. So I suspect that the research also demonstrated this approach created uh, more loyal customers. Absolutely. Absolutely, because the voice of the customer more quickly circulated throughout the enterprise. Because if you say, okay, I'm going to invite stakeholders to this deal storm meeting, you say, okay, I'm going to invite the actual account coordinators, the billing managers, and the data analysts that work right with the client. Well, all of a sudden, you're getting information from the edges of the organization that nobody put in Salesforce. 
Nobody's ever presented, but it comes up in the, in the space of these solution meetings. And all of a sudden, the company has more of a 360-degree view of the customer. And I'll tell you something else. If you invite the delivery team in when it's a sales challenge and not a broken promise, <laughs> right. you'd be shocked at how much more they make it work and deliver everything we're going to say. And too often, though, we think of those guys as the land of no. We think when they push back, they don't want to do the work. But if you build a deal storm and really get them on the team, they're just being honest with you and they're helping you manage expectations better because expectation management is not on the customer. Yeah, and there's no, great, no greater friction inside of an organization than a person who is uh, on a team where it wasn't his idea or her idea, right? Exactly. There's no <laughs> saying in a band that the easiest way for a drummer to get fired is to show up at rehearsal and say, hey, I have an idea for a song. <laughs> so... Uh, talk a little bit about the research uh, that uh, that went into this. Uh, the, this pretty fascinating, somewhere over 200 uh, interviews with sales leaders uh, really kind of brought you to the conclusions. Uh, you want to talk about that process a little? Sure, absolutely. So the book started, you know, it's just the body of my work. So I worked at markcubansbroadcast.com. It's where this process kind of started, very complicated, selling audio-video business services in 97. Um, honed it at Yahoo after the dot-com crash, trying to rebuild our business, did 60 of these deal storms collectively. Then as a consultant for a decade, I did another 60 of these with 40 companies, and we worked with all kinds of companies. So I had my own experiences, but if you're going to write a book like this, you want to reach out to your overall sales leadership community and try to write the best process you can. So I interviewed 200 leaders at all kinds of companies, from companies like SAP Cloud to career builder to ex-employees at companies like Novell and Sun Microsystems and then places like ADP or Perot Systems and then all kinds of marketing folks, ad agencies, television networks like ESPN. And collectively, what I was really getting at, John, is what do you do when you get stuck? What do you do when you lose a big account? Talk to me about that process. What did you learn worked? What did you learn didn't work? What were the things that really made the process sing? And then quite frankly, I'd, I'd show them the six steps at the time. And they'd vet it. And all of a sudden, by about the 100th interview, I had a seventh step. And that's kind of how these things work. So we took a process that I felt pretty comfortable with. It had a 70% close ratio to over $2 billion of deal flow. It reduced sales cycle by 25%. But after doing 200 interviews or more, I'm telling you, I think it's something you can take to the bank. So uh, I want to get into those steps process just a little bit, but um, I've got a couple kind of lead, lead up questions to that. I'm, I'm guessing that in some cases, and I'm going to suggest this is a good thing, but some people might not look at it as such. Uh, in some cases, does this approach actually kill a deal, particularly a deal that shouldn't have happened anyway? Um, yeah, I mean, sometimes you get in the room and you, this, that's a very good question. So the answer is yes. Out of the 30% of the time that the deal didn't happen, one third of the time we deemed there was no prospect product fit. Really important phrase here. You probably haven't read this. I mean, I hadn't before I got into a meeting and I was in a big meeting with a technology company. And after bringing everybody in who had a stake in the outcome, knew something about the deal, they were like looking at the AE saying, we will not produce value for this customer with what you're trying to sell. Mm -hmm. We really should kill this for their sake. Everybody's like, what? But it was because they brought in enough insights to realize there's not a fit between the product that we sell and the prospect's true pain. And they were wasting our time. And that sometimes can come from the deal stream. And guess what? It saved everybody a bunch of time. And worse, you know, imagine what if we sold that product through just force and tenacity and charisma and then it didn't work. It would hurt our reputation. 
A lot of times in startup world, you hear about product market fit, right? We focus mm-hmm. a lot on that. But I think that for the world of sales and marketing, we need to ask ourselves, you know, is there a product prospect fit? And you can't answer that question, John, if you don't go Columbo inside your organization. Right. I mean, a salesperson should realize that product prospect fit starts with deep knowledge of your capabilities, not just the stuff that's on your menu, but where it comes from and what the stack looks like and how your partner chain can be leveraged. Because the most interesting sales leaders I've met that managed to really make complicated sales become a competitive advantage, they were masters of their own domain. They knew how, like a master chef, to cobble together all kinds of capabilities inside, outside the company to go to market with a one of a kind and find that fit. And I'm telling you that that is one of the points in the book I really make is that we learn the most, we sell the most. Yeah, I, I bet you in a lot of organizations you'll find that top salesperson, and I'll bet you they're taking the engineers out to lunch and doing stuff on oh. their own dime just for that that exact reason you mentioned. Exactly. So, so Alyssa D'Amato is one of the big heroes in my book. You know, that was her secret. Is she asked more questions than she made statements. So, like, like she's trying to get the chief technology officer Eric Presley inside the company to take eight engineers off a strategic build of a new product that was behind, and put them on building a prototype for her to win a deal. But she doesn't like force her way into it. She impresses this guy. She asks him fifty different questions to help her get a better understanding of what they do when they're building this product and how they get product feedback and how they iterate through version one, two, three, four, five before they drop it on the market, you know, with the wheels on the bus. And what they learned through her 50 questions was that by doing the prototype for her prospect and giving them a developer key, she might actually reduce their iteration time to get their actual product to market. But she didn't sell him on it. She asked her way to that. Her president, Eric Gilpin, I interviewed him for the book. He said, when she was trying to figure out how to put together a side-by-side test to win back the account from Monster, she literally had meetings with over 80 different people across engineering, data analysts, billing recognition, et cetera, to kind of cobble together what it would take. So in a world of where we tell people, go listen to your prospect. Get them to talk to you. She's doing the same thing on the inside. And everybody said, you know, what I respected so much about her was her curiosity. So I'm talking with Tim Sanders, the author of Deal Storming. So one more question before we get into the process. Um, Are there better deals for deal storming? So in other words, as that salesperson, could you get to the point where you'd walk in and go, the only way we're going to get this is to deal storm it? Or by deal storming this, I'll make this happen in two months instead of two years? High value opportunity, absolute sticking point your process can't address. But in your back of your mind, you know you're good for them, right? So you walk into a situation, you go, damn it, I know we have a product prospect fit here. We can move the needle for these guys. We're the ones. But we're stuck. And the way we're doing it, we're not going to get unstuck. And we might be like, we're going to get stuck in several situations, right? We're stuck getting in the door. We're going to get stuck later convincing them we're the right ones. And then we're probably going to get stuck at the end on contracting because of procurement. You know, sometimes you recognize multiple sticking points. But really, it's this combination of three things. Product prospect fit, a recognition that it's too important to lose, and the recognition that it's more complex than your current process allows. That's when you're like, all right, we've got we to create a storm. And then you're going to resource that storm against the size of the opportunity. 
So, you know, let's say it's like a medium-sized opportunity. It's important to your quota, but it's not going to save the company. Classic example, I call that a situation where you're going to create the fantastic four. That involves at least two people not in sales. It might be a person in marketing, might be a person in operations delivery. But for a smaller opportunity, fantastic four. But for a game changer or to win back your biggest account, dude, you're creating the Justice League. (laughs) You're going to go wide. You're going to keep asking people who's missing because what you're trying to do is gather the most perfect of information you can from the edges of the field because all inventions are just two or more ingredients that have been noticed and put together. And, and you get a better chance of doing that when you build a wider team. Do, do you see organizations loosely um, forming this way? I do. Yeah. I do see organizations that are smart enough to know, okay, we got to build a team. There's things they don't do in the process, though, that makes it a goat rodeo. Mm, right. Right? I mean, you know, that brain, people brainstorm naturally it doesn't mean it works. I mean, some of the worst meetings I've ever been in in my life were, quote, brainstorm meetings. Um, uh, uh, this executive I talked to at Altera, which makes a chip semiconductor, he, he has this saying, and it's called, uh, without a process, you get a mess. Yeah. Lead or be led. So when these companies organically create what they call, they, they would call it, you know, SWAT teams or initiatives or whatever, right. there's two things they don't do and they should do. Um, thing number one is they should bring in the most junior stakeholders that have the greatest stake in the deal from a delivery standpoint. They don't bring them in. They don't bring them in because either they don't respect their seniority or even worse, they worry it's going to slow down the process because they're going to come in and say, we can't do that. We don't want to do that. So they don't bring them in. But the biggest mistake companies make when they think they're creating a deal storm team is they don't brief them three days in advance and let incubation set in. So, so a meeting is not an information dump. You don't call a meeting and say, okay, you guys, we're going to have a meeting about the Goodrich account. And so we all get into the room. And this is where you know the leader goes, all right, this is the situation. We're not moving forward. This is what we tried. Okay, guys, what do we do? Mm-hmm. What the heck? I mean, nobody's had any time to have any frame of reference about this. And this is something I learned from IDEO Labs you know, out in Palo Alto that invented all these great products. Tom Kelly, years and years ago, told me chance favors the prepared mind. He told me what I was getting wrong at Yahoo, and it was one little piece of the puzzle. He was like, you schedule a deal store meeting on Tuesday, but by Thursday morning, you've sent out, a, we called it a parse, meaning short brief, but you send out a deal brief on Thursday, the week before, and it's short. It's not, it's like three pages, and it's like statement of the problem, why you think you're stuck, statement of the opportunity, influence map of who's involved on the other side, activities today, and links if you got them. And then a personal thinking assignment for everyone on the team, meaning every brief is different for every attendee. The assignment might be, tell me who's missing from the team, do some research against my problem to see if I'm right, come up with some ideas for the solution. I'm just kind of giving you some examples. And then on Friday, the account executive, or in this case, the the ideal leader, they're calling everybody saying, hey, John, did you get the brief? Did you read the brief? It's really important. What did you think? I'll hold while you read it. They're just obsessive about getting people to read it before Friday. Because if they do, magic happens on Saturday and Sunday. Incubation happens. While these people are just doing mindless things, they're watching the game, they're walking the dog, their mind is like clicking and it's searching the edges of their hard drive. And they're thinking about thinking about the problem, thinking about the activities today, thinking about the influence map, and pieces start to fall together. So when they walk into the room Tuesday, 
They already have ideas, but more importantly, they have some clarity of the assumptions behind their ideas. Because in a deal storm, that's what you do in the opening section is you ask people, you know, what is your idea? A person says, I think we should do this. And you say, what is your assumption behind that? And they say, well, and they've thought about it some. And they go, I saw this and I noticed that and I think if we do these things, it'll make a difference. And it leads to a much more creative discussion and quite frankly, a better collaborative environment. Yeah, the, 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 the meeting then is about making decisions instead of somebody just actually reading the original memo. Right, because the problem with the reading the original memo is that that leads to more meetings. Yeah. The worst way to end a meeting is to say, this is great, this has been awesome, let's have another meeting. No, I don't want to do that. I'm like Coach K at Duke. I'm all like next play. Yeah. The yeah. purpose of a meeting is to set the next best play possible and then go execute that play quickly because time's not on our side. So I wanted to give you a chance to, to actually outline the, the process itself that you've come up with, but I think you've kind of been doing that all along our interview. Uh, you've, there you go. You, you've revealed a few of these steps, so I don't know that we need to – but I'll give you a chance. Do you want to sure. sort of wrap up or frame the, the entire sure. process? Yeah. Here's seven steps. Seven steps, and it's a cycle. It's a circle. You're going to go through it over and over again until you either kill the deal or win the deal. You guys ready? Here we go. One, qualify the opportunity. You're going to qualify the size of the team and the width of the team against the size of the opportunity and how complex it is. Two, you're going to organize your team. Um, you're going to organize that team based on who has a stake in the outcome or some expertise around the problem. You're going to have a team that's one person fewer than you think you need. <laughs> Because the more people you bring, the more agendas you have to manage, right. right? So you be careful about your size. When you organize a team, you're not inviting people to come to a meeting. That sounds horrible. You're inviting them to join a cause. You figured out some why behind winning that's not just about the money. It could be a rivalry with competition. It could be your reputation if you're saving an account. It could be the company's credo to be excellent and to solve problems. But whatever it is, you've got to find a why that transcends the department lines. The third step of the puzzle is to prepare people. I talked about this. You've got to brief them well in advance, and you've got to be very transparent with them so they can come into the room just as ready to debate your assumptions around the problem as they are to bring up ideas for the solution. Step number four is you convene. Notice I didn't say the word meet. You get together as a team, and in real time, usually in an hour, you have a vigorous debate about what's the real root cause, what are the nominated ideas for the next best play, can we combine those ideas to produce something we can all live with and who owns the work after this meeting? The fifth step is to execute. And execution comes down to rapid prototyping and unapologetic implementation. What I mean by that is if you're trying something new, someone should be able to create a visual prototype for it. I don't care what it is. A new process, a new path, a new presentation. Show me, don't tell me. And then if possible, if we've got an internal champion, let's whisper that prototype across the firewall so we can find out before it's important if that dog's going to hunt. And when we execute, execution's based on a lot of research, so we go into the market and we try the new just like we've been doing it every single day. It's like I hate it when people like, like, like they give you their record or their demo and they go, well, this wasn't really recorded right. It doesn't really sound right, but I want you to hear it. That is no way to sell a new idea forward. Just present it. Um, step number five is to analyze. And this is really, I'm sorry, step number six is to analyze. It's really important that after you execute, you begin to step back and ask yourself, are we leveling up? Because a deal is 100 problems solved, leveling all the way to the top of the pyramid, if you will, thinking about it like a video game. And we have to analyze whether we're making progress, 
we have to analyze, are there any externalities, any downsides to the approach we just took? And as a team leader, we have to analyze the quality of other contributors. Like, was there somebody in the room that was right and we didn't realize it because they were an introvert? Was there some blowhard in the room that everybody anchored around that caused us to pick a bad next best play? You've got to be willing to make changes to that team, and you'll only do it through the habit of analysis. And step number seven is reporting. This is the one I added after talking to a lot of sales leaders. I mean, the idea here is that, sure, there's an email that goes out after a convened meeting that says, we agreed on these things, and John, you're going to do that. But then we drop everybody out of the loop. And it's like this black box, and all of a sudden, the engineer that's come to five-year meetings, he doesn't know where the deal is. He's never going to play on your team again. That's disrespectful. You've got to keep people in regular reporting as if they worked with you in your department to help them understand, we made the presentation. We think this is the next step. This is the next place we're going with the meeting. We're going to do and so you, as you keep people in the loop, especially millennials who expect real-time reporting, you keep them engaged on the team. And then one of the final things I've learned is that it's critical in the reporting step that when we discover an innovative idea that makes a breakthrough in an account, we need to immediately test it again on a lookalike. And if it works a couple of times, we need to escalate it to senior management so it can quickly cycle into a codified case study and be integrated into the new sales process. Because the only reason to think out of a box is to make it stronger. And there's a real disconnect here. And I, I participated in a study a couple of years ago of thousands of people in B2B. And what we were looking at, John, is like, how long does it take for a field-level innovation to become a case study that's part of the new way we sell. And I was shocked. 45 companies, thousands of people, the average cycle is 30 months. Okay, It's taken almost six months just for a, a case study to be generated. So, so the reporting function's broken. You know, We report the bad news, and we let the good news wait till sales conference, or just happenstance. And we got to do a better job of making reporting like the cherry on the deal storming cake. Yeah, and as I listen to this approach, too, I, I suspect companies that are really doing this well also um, are very quick to share their credit. Uh, Absolutely. It happens, you know, because that's, that, that, that's how you keep that collaboration going, isn't it? That's the currency, right? Yeah. And, and one caveat I've kind of learned, too, though, is that never give credit to an individual for having an idea. You, you want to blow up a team, do that. Yeah. Because no one has an idea. Yeah. People create nuisances. <laughs> yeah, yeah. nuisance is like hi we should try this and then a guy next says well yeah but with this twist because if you do it that way it's going to blow up and the person next to you says but 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 wait a minute what if we presented it in this sort of way instead of that way and then all of a sudden you know the the chemical soup of innovation kind of happens and you know genius becomes a team sport and then later the boss says man i want to thank eric for having that idea right and every other contributor in the meeting goes, damn it, why does he get all the credit? Yeah. And it just really spoils the atmosphere of a group. So I love to recognize efforts and contributions and stick to and most of all, finishing. Yeah. That's what I love to recognize. But yes, you absolutely have to give recognition. SAP Cloud's been doing this thing I really dig, and CareerBuilder does it too, where every year they either give an award or they invite to their president's club non-sales contributors. Like SAP Cloud's like, yeah, we invited someone from the legal department one year because he'd worked on several deals helping us solve that gap between how we contract and how they contract in procurement. And finally, we realized he's on our team. Nothing sends the signal he's on our team like bringing him to the mountaintop. And so I think there's ways we can give recognition. There's ways we can really give recognition, but just don't do it for the ideas. Yeah, awesome. 
Uh, Tim, uh, I know people can buy Deal Storming anywhere they buy books, but is there anywhere you want to point out that they might uh, find out more about your work and the work involved in Deal Storming? Absolutely. Everybody visit dealstorming.net. Dealstorming.net. Um, you can download a free chapter of the book. Uh, you can also get a two hour video training program free when you buy a book. And I'm on all the social networks. I'm at Sanders Says, just like Simon Says. Awesome. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Great book, and I know it will uh, continue your work and, and uh, the, the, the legacy of these books. I think that's one of the interesting things about the work that we do is that uh, yeah. uh, some of this work will live on longer than you and I want to care to do this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, John. So, all right. Thank you so much, hopefully, buddy. Hopefully we'll see you out there on the road. <laughs>